0: Welcome to the British Broadcasting Century. It's November the 14th, 2020, as this episode hits the internet, the 98th birthday of the BBC. On this day in 1922, at 6pm, came the first broadcast of the British Broadcasting Company. And you're about to hear, for pretty much the first time that I can see in its entirety, a reconstruction of that broadcast based on news articles, history books, and a bit of gut feeling. I'm Paul Carenza, host of this podcast. For what led to this point, our previous 17 episodes will tell you about the technical breakthroughs, the radio ban, talk of a North BBC and a South BBC, and the on-air experimentation, of course, a boxing match that only lasted for a minute, a royal address to scouts, a fake opera singer who was really the engineer doing a funny voice, and much much more. But for the first night of the BBC, they stripped it right back. No gramophone records, no live concert, just this. A news bulletin read by Arthur Burroughs, Marconi's head of publicity and soon to be director of programmes at the BBC. There are no recordings of it and there's no script, but we do know the order of the items, the length of the broadcast and many other details that will tell you about after the reconstruction but for now let's hear that first bbc broadcast
1: it's just over 10 minutes and the original would have been nearer half an hour as Burroughs repeated the entire bulletin at half speed we're not putting you through that just play it again slowly
0: if it gets too newsy for you well just ask yourself how long you've spent watching news channels in the last few weeks and disappear into 1922 with us instead it opens with a tuning signal on a bellows organ to allow the listeners in to tune their receiving sets, and then the Westminster chimes, not from Big Ben, but on tubular bells in the studio, played by musical director Stanton Jeffries. Your announcer is Arthur Burrows, live from London's 2LO studio at Marconi House on the Strand, with a delay of 98 years. This was the BBC. Hello, hello, this is 2LO calling, 2LO calling. Marconi broadcasting on behalf of the Broadcasting Committee on the 360-metre waveband from London, Marconi House, The Strand. This is Arthur Burrows, Director of Programmes at 2LO. This evening's broadcast will consist of a weather report followed by a news bulletin, which will be read, first at a standard speed, it will then be repeated at a slower speed. A second broadcast will be made at 9 o'clock, at which time a further bulletin will be presented. 2LO welcomes correspondence from listeners in in order to ascertain at which speed the news bulletins should be read. It may be the case that I will read too slowly for people to remember the context. Only experience will furnish the best average speed. I'm interested to discover whether listeners in would prefer the bulletin to be read once slowly, or once fast and once slowly, or even whether the preference is for it to be read fast twice. The broadcast tomorrow will commence at 6 o'clock and 9 o'clock, and will present a series of results from the election as they arrive at the transmitting station. There now follows the weather report for South and South East England, East and West Midlands and South Wales as supplied by the Meteorological Department of the Air Ministry. Light winds, mainly north-easterly, fog inland early, fair periods in most places during the day, rather cold, the further outlook is generally settled. Stand by for the news. First copyright news from Reuters, Press Association, Exchange and Central News. Polling in the general election takes place tomorrow. The Prime Minister, Mr Boner Law, making his final election speech in Glasgow today, said that he had very considerable confidence that the result of the polls throughout the country would be to give the Unionist Party a working majority on which they could depend. Mr Law also said that it was from a revival of trade alone that we could have a recovery from the conditions that prevailed, and that there was nothing which rested so firmly at the root of any possible trade revival as a feeling of confidence, quietness and stability. Today, Mr Winston Churchill continued his election campaign in Dundee. Addressing a large audience, he said that attempts were being made to stifle free expression of political opinion. He referred to great meetings filled with 4,000 or 5,000 orderly citizens which are brought to chaos and disorder through the organised disruption and rowdiness of 300 or 400 persons who are followers of Mr Morrell and Mr Gallagher. Mr Churchill was said to be none the worse for his rowdy meeting the previous night and it was confirmed that there were to be no police court charges. A verdict has been returned this afternoon, at the inquest on the exhumed body of Mrs Jelfs, a wealthy widow from Chiswick. The Home Office expert declared that his analysis had failed to show the cause of death. Dramatic revelations were made, and friends of the deceased woman spoke of their suspicions of her doctor's carelessness. Dr Bernard Hartshorn, who is awaiting his trial at the Old Bailey on a charge of attempting to commit suicide, was present, accompanied by two warders. Mrs. Jelf's death certificate was signed by Dr. Hartshorn. Dr. Hartshorn had attended Mrs. Jelf's and administered an anaesthetic before her death. The verdict stated that no blame was attached to Dr. Hartshorn. Among the 120 persons for trial at the November sessions of the Old Bailey, which opened today, is Gerard Lee Bevan, the city financier committed from the Guildhall on charges of fraud in connection with the City Equitable Fire Insurance Company Limited, of which he was chairman. In his charge to the grand jury, the recorder, Sir Ernest Wilde, reported on the allegations against Bevan. He said that Bevan asserted at meetings and repeated in various reports and balance sheets and prospectuses that the company's affairs were in a most prosperous condition. It was further alleged that in the balance sheet of 1919, an asset described as treasury bills to the amount of £198,576 was a fictitious item. Furthermore, under the heading of Loans on Call, there appeared an item of £51,000 due from Ellison Company, the firm of which Bevan was a partner. The true amount due from Ellison Company to the fire company was £318,000, And, as a matter of fact, Ellis and company were insolvent. It also appeared that Bevan appropriated sums for his own use. The grand jury returned a true bill against Mr Bevan. The trial is expected to last nearly a fortnight. There was a tragic air crash today in Paris... The first competition for the Grand Prix for cargo-carrying aeroplanes was marked by a tragic accident, the well-known aviator Monsieur Poiret and his two passenger mechanics Courcy and Babilier, being killed. The accident happened during the fifth lap. While the Coudron machine was making towards the town of Compas, spectators suddenly heard a loud noise and saw the machine fall and turn completely over before reaching the ground. The debris went flying in all directions, part of the seating being found nearly 100 yards away. The first to be extracted was the mechanic Cousy. He was still breathing, but he died a few moments later. Poirier and Babillier were killed at their posts. Poirier was one of the oldest and best of French pilots. Recently, he informed a friend of his intention to abandon aviation, as he intended to represent a big automobile firm. It is believed that Poirier's accident was due to one of the four propellers bursting in the air. Poirier was flying a four-motor aeroplane with two motors at the front and two at the back. As seven minutes have elapsed, I will now cease transmitting for three minutes to listen for government messages as per the terms of our licence. Hello, hello. This is 2LO calling. The Great Central Railway Company's police are investigating a remarkable theft of an attaché case containing over £4,000 in notes from a passenger during a journey between Marylebone and Leicester. Despite the fog, there was a good attendance at Sotheby's Rooms today, where a set of the first four folio editions of Shakespeare was offered for sale. For the first folio, an opening bid of £1,000 was made, and not until after a keen contest was it won at £5,900. This is the second highest price given at an auction for a first folio, the record being £8,500 paid last May. A thick fog has enveloped London today. It was white and patchy, and in some parts it was possible to walk out of one fog area, through a clear space, and into another fog bank. In southwestern and northeastern districts early buses were led through the streets by the conductors dr john owens the well-known authority said the amount of soot breathed in by londoners was about 200 weight it is estimated that 50 tons of it hung in the air over london today's billiards tournaments are still in play at thurstons the current champion mr newman was completely out of form this afternoon scoring only 11 points At the interval, the scores were Mr Smith at 2,001, Mr Newman at 701 points. In the other main tournament at Burroughs Hall, Mr Inman increased his lead against Mr Faulkner. At the interval, the scores were Mr Inman at 2,001 and Mr Faulkner 1,557. Both matches remain in play. That concludes the first bulletin. This is 2LO calling... 2LO London Broadcasting Station calling. For the sake of those who might have missed the bulletin, or for those who wish to hear it again, I shall now repeat it at a slower speed. There now follows the weather report for South and South East England. Matches remain in play. That concludes the first bulletin. As stated earlier, Two Lo welcomes correspondence from listeners in in order to advise at which speed the news bulletins should be read. I am interested to discover whether listeners in would prefer the bulletins to be read once slowly, once fast, and once slowly, or whether the preference is for fast twice. A second bulletin will be presented at nine o'clock this evening. Tomorrow's broadcast will commence at six o'clock and nine o'clock. The latter will present a series of results of the election as they arrive at the transmitting station. That concludes our first broadcast. This is 2LO closing down. Station 2LO closing down. This is 2LO Marconi broadcasting on behalf of the Broadcasting Committee on the 360 metre waveband closing down. You know, this broadcasting is going to be jolly good fun. <laughs> and there you have it. That last comment was one of Arthur Burroughs' rare ad libs, normally very formal, everything written down in advance, unlike his sometime rival Peter Eckersley, who's a bit more freewheeling. And though it now fell silent for nearly three hours until the next bulletin, the BBC had begun. Hello, hello, this is Paul Corenza calling... London This is the British Broadcasting Century. Thank you for joining us on this anniversary episode 98 years on from the BBC's launch to the day. And it sounded just like that. Here's the man himself, first voice of the BBC, Arthur Burroughs. Thus, the British Broadcasting Company came into being. There was something big, even colossal, conveyed in the nature of the contract we had undertaken. It was broadcast from a dingy 12 foot square studio, faded green carpet, battered old grand piano in the corner and a battered old sofa with stuffing pouring out of it. Here, Arthur Burroughs spoke into an ordinary telephone receiver connected to a 1.5 kilowatt telephony transmitter, as the Daily Mail reported the next day. That's the humble starting place of the British Broadcasting Company, not the British Broadcasting Corporation, of course, that it became, that we now know and live with, neither of which I should say are affiliated with this podcast. We're just here to inform, educate and entertain you about the origins of British Broadcasting. And like the wardrobe studio from which I speak to you now, that first BBC studio was a complete sweatbox, even in November. Open the windows, though, and you let the traffic noise in, as well as that rather stubborn fog that Burroughs mentioned in the news bulletin. If he wanted an accurate weather report, he really could have just opened the window, as he recalled years later. Sensible people were in their homes, sitting comfortably before their fires. But in two rooms on the top floor of Marconi House in the Strand, we had not reckoned with the London fog. The studio at Marconi House was very small. We dared not run the ventilating fan, as its noise would have gone over as a background of escaping steam. So we arranged to open the windows during the intervals. In those days, we were required by an official ruling to stop broadcasting for three minutes in each ten. So then we opened the windows. Each time we did this, for we were gasping for air, In came this reddish-brown penetrating fog. Ah, yes, you may recall episodes ago on the podcast, we mentioned this seven minutes on, three minutes off rule. And that was still the case when the BBC launched. In every ten minutes, the broadcasters had to include three minutes of silence to listen out for government messages, telling them to stop broadcasting in case they were interfering with military transmissions. But such a government message never actually came. The radio pioneers at the time described this as the man walking in front of the car with a red flag. Super safe and cautious was the British style of broadcasting. No crashes here, as opposed to the American free-for-all where new radio stations were popping up every other day. Broadcasting today. Preliminary broadcasting will be authorised from Marconi House this evening. From the Times, November the 14th, 1922. This announcement will be received with satisfaction by amateur wireless operators all over the country and will bring to an end a long period of delay and uncertainty. It is now rather more than two months since it was announced that the broadcasting company was being formed and it had been hoped to start the scheme early in the autumn. As we've heard elsewhere on this podcast, just one broadcasting company was allowed and it was made up from various wireless manufacturers and interested parties. Marconi's was the biggest and it was their studio in London that got there first. The formation of the British Broadcasting Company will be completed in a few days and pending its formation, the Broadcasting Committee has decided to begin this limited programme. General Electric, that was another one, their station in Birmingham, 5IT, began under the BBC banner the next day. More of them next episode. And Metrovic was another. Their Manchester station, 2ZY, gave their first BBC broadcast an hour after Birmingham. So, yeah, it was actually a day later, really, that the British broadcasting company got properly, well, even then, English Rather than just Londonish. Day one was just that one station. Country stations will be erected at Birmingham, Manchester, Newcastle, Plymouth, Cardiff, Edinburgh or Glasgow, and Aberdeen. Each station is estimated to cost about £20,000. But for this episode, let's celebrate Marconi's and Tuolow and Arthur Burroughs and that first broadcast. Now, did the broadcasters know that this was the start of a new era, I wonder? I think, in many respects, No, they didn't. We like to think there was some kind of landmark, nervous beginning of the BBC, a fanfare, a first night party, but no, none of that stuff. In many ways, it was business as usual. The start of the Beeb, rather administrative. Here's an example. Stanton Jeffries was the soon to be musical director of the BBC. You would have heard him playing those tubular bells at the start there. But... For now, he was the station director of Tuolo, assisting Arthur Burroughs. And together they started the Children's Hour, for example, a few weeks on from this first broadcast, playing Uncle Arthur and Uncle Jeff. Well, one of Jeffrey's jobs at this point was to apply for Tuolo's license. If you're a regular on this podcast, you might recall a few episodes ago, we said that Tuolo had to reapply every single time they wanted a new license for a new broadcast. A little tedious, but at least the benefit was they could change what sort of license they were after, add some music, add a bit of innovation as they went. But on the morning of November the 14th, 98 years ago, as this podcast lands, I may have mentioned that, Stanton Jeffries applies as usual for a license for the day's programming, except today he's told he doesn't need one. As of November the 14th, Tuolo already has a license under the umbrella of the British Broadcasting Company, even though... No one actually works for them yet and they don't have an address. At this point, the BBC is just a nebulous thing. Because, yeah, as soon as the company was registered, the BBC officially began. So the very next broadcast after that moment, on November the 14th, would automatically become the first BBC broadcast. Now, at this point, the fledgling BBC had 30 to 40,000 listeners and just four employees. And by chance, there are in fact four of us who've made that broadcast reenactment possible. So, thank you to Will Farmer, our regular composer, for the tuning signal and the bells, as accurate as we can hope for. Thank you to Tim Wonder, the broadcasting historian, who not only wrote several books detailing these events, but also he looked over the script for us and checked that we were as bang on as possible. And for the script itself, a huge thank you to Andrew Barker, whose extensive research of newspaper articles of the time meant that he could pull together the stories that we know were in there and give us text that I. I'm sure, would have been almost exactly as reported. In a small room at the top floor of Marconi House, Mr Arthur Burroughs, the operator, simply spoke into an ordinary tabled telephone to which wires were attached, leading to the transmitting room. This is from the Portsmouth Evening News, November the 15th, 1922. Here, wireless apparatus took up the sound waves, converted them into suitable wireless wavelengths and transmitted them to the aerial upon the roof of Marconi House from whence the voice was broadcasted into space. Andrew is our newspaper detective. You'll have heard him last episode, and sure enough, he's back this time, reporting that the papers had a thing or two to say about the BBC's birth.
2: Yes, we have effectively exactly what happened at at six o'clock on that very first, what we now think of as being the first BBC broadcast.
0: Heralded by chimes. Promptly at six o'clock, the programme opened
2: by playing the Westminster chimes. It would be on their tubular bells. Then the listeners in were invited to advise the operator to suggest at what speed he should read the news bulletins. And in those very early days, they actually, Mr. Burroughs, actually read the news bulletins once at a normal speaking speed and then at a slower speed, at a dictation speed.
0: Reading the news was brand new to broadcasting at this point. It had just been agreed a few days before that news could be read. He didn't know how fast people read and he'd been deliberately watching people read their newspapers in advance of this.
2: And then on that very first broadcast, he announces that in the following days they will be providing election results.
0: The first item of news to be broadcasted in this country was the Air Ministry's weather report and forecast.
2: And then items of news.
0: The verdict in an inquest... The opening of the Old Bailey, a report of an aeroplane... And that's
2: the, the order of, um, of items in that very first broadcast. So not that different from, uh, from now where some stations might well put weather followed by news.
0: Everything passed off quite successfully, was Mr Burrows' comment yesterday.
2: Nobody could tell to what extent
0: broadcasting would catch on, nor indeed whether it would take on at all. There was no precedent, no store of experience to be tapped, No staff ready to hand with metal proved in a similar field. It was all left to us. It's been quite a journey for Burroughs from writing about radio before broadcasting even existed to accompanying Dame Nellie Melba to her concert at the first public radio demonstration to taking requests for songs from ships at sea to running the Tuolo station for most of 1922. Sir William Noble, chair of the Broadcasting Committee, chose Arthur Burroughs to be the first broadcaster on the Beeb, which is handy because that's what Burroughs planned on doing too. Effectively, Sir William Noble is the boss before John Reith gets there. Reith is a month away yet. Till now, the buck really stops with the Postmaster General, Frederick Kellaway. He's been keen on broadcasting throughout 1922, and it's really down to him that one BBC came about rather than dozens. But irony of irony, in the election results, the very next day from the BBC's launch, the Postmaster General loses his seat. So, yet yeah, the BBC's effective big boss loses his job on day two of the BBC. How very careless. And how bizarre as well. But where does this gatekeeper to wireless end up? Where next for the postmaster general who really marshalled and corralled and prodded the BBC into being? Well, Kellaway becomes managing director of Marconis. Yeah, it even ends up being discussed in Parliament that Kellaway swiftly joined Marconis only weeks after negotiating with them on behalf of the government. So could he have bolstered the finances of Marconi's before jumping ship and joining them? Hmm. Yeah, I have more questions than answers here. Tuolo has been a demonstration station thus far in 1922. And even on that first evening of broadcasting, the demonstrations were continuing. Not with Burroughs presenting, as he would usually do. He's now presenting on the radio, of course, but instead given by Mr. H. Anthony Hankey. Just after Burroughs goes off air, Mr. Hankey begins a lecture at St. Bright Institute on Fleet Street, explaining to his audience how radio works, how far it's come in 25 years, growing from transmitting over just a few yards to now 12,000 miles. And to prove his point, that very evening in London, he communicates in front of the crowd to Amsterdam via a wire to Southwold in Suffolk, then wirelessly over the North Sea to the Dutch coast, and then by wire again from there to Amsterdam. It's a perfect demonstration, so says a Times journalist present, of how a wireless concert could be broadcast one day from concert hall to home radio sets. Because as yet, that has not been done. We just wait till 1923 for broadcasts from theatres instead of from the radio studios. Mr Hankey, the lecture giver, he's one of those forgotten, near-pioneers of radio. Ever present, it seems, not doing the landmark broadcasting or innovating. But Mr Hankey, he was the one who ran the cinema at Marconi House that you may recall was kicked out to accommodate the new 2 studio. And like Burroughs, Hankey left Marconi to join the Beeb, becoming Assistant Chief Engineer under Peter Eckersley. So yes, these lectures were continuing, but the days of experimenting were technically over. Now we're into professional broadcasting. And what comes after day one of the BBC? Yep, all together now, day two of the BBC. The next day, November the 15th, was election day. And certainly here in November 2020, we all know how fascinating it can be to broadcast elections. Ahead of the first election night special, Sir William Noble, head of the broadcasting committee, set out some plans, apart from just, you know, find a dimblebee. I've told them that they must not go beyond one o'clock in the morning in order not to interfere with any of the newspapers. He told a newspaper, The Times. Yeah, best to keep the papers on side. We want to work smoothly with the newspapers and we want to act in such a way that broadcasting may be an incentive to the public to buy more newspapers. We shall whet their appetite for news. It is for that reason that we are not giving long reports. And the Times continued to inform its readers. Those possessing a multi-valve receiver would be able to tune in any of the eight stations at will and eliminate the remaining seven, even though they were all transmitting at the same time. I love that idea that the newspaper had to tell listeners that you could eliminate those other broadcasts, that actually you don't have to listen to eight different radio stations at the same time. This could be done by simple wavelength tuning. Thus, if one were not particularly keen on a band selection from Manchester, one could tune in the 3.30 winner from London or a sermon from Plymouth. This could be done equally well in bed, while shaving, or in a deck chair in the garden. Personally, I like to shave in bed in the garden while listening to a band sermon about the 3.30 winner. How wonderful that radios even work for that too. What a world. Now, we had a comment on our Facebook page from Paula Goddard. Hi, Paula. Checking exactly when the BBC launch date was, because... She heard on Radio 4 a few weeks ago, in October, that it was the birthday of the BBC then. Well, the BBC is a bit like the Queen. It has several birthdays. In fact, I think it's got five. So it's like uh, two and a half Queen's. October the 18th, 1922, is when the BBC was formed at a board meeting. We mentioned a few episodes ago. The broadcasts begin, of course, November the 14th, thanks to that agreement with the press. December the 15th is when it was registered as a company. That's just paperwork, really, though. And the licence itself doesn't arrive until January. So, yeah, this is technically unlicensed pirate radio for the first month and a half. Then there's the current British Broadcasting Corporation, their birthday is January the first, nineteen twenty six. But in its early years, the BBC had a little birthday concert for itself on November the 14th, and that was the first broadcast. So let's go with then. Now, more from you, dear listener, then on this podcast we like to include Airwave Memories, A.M., and First Hand Memories, FM. So in a moment, an airwave memory from a true Goliath of broadcasting, from Radio Caroline to the first Radio One lineup. It's Emperor Roscoe. But first, some of your first hand memories of broadcasting. <laughs> This from Alan Stafford, who joined us talking about comedy. Alan says, two highlights of many shows I watched at the Paris studios on Lower Regent Street. The men from the ministry, Richard Murdoch and Derek Guiler, they were so good at acting out the situations to the studio audience, I could swear I could actually see them hanging from the clocks of Big Ben. And secondly, Alan says, my word, which always concluded with Frank Muir and Dennis Norden, each telling a long convoluted story explaining the origins of a phrase, culminating in an excruciating pun. Many of these stories have since been published, were obviously carefully scripted, so I expected them to read them off their scripts. But no, they just faced the audience and performed the whole thing from memory when they really didn't need to. Two instances of performers succeeding in entertaining both the audience at home and the audience in front of them. And here's an FM from Kev Sutherland. His big experience was BBC Radio Leicester's youth show, Primetime. He says, which I joined in 1984. Learned the desk, got innumerable records from the chuck-out box, because most singles sent to a local radio station would never get played, and performed pathetic juvenile comedy sketches for about four years. It produced a few sports presenters, Ian Carter, still on Radio 4, and producers. He says, I bet I could still pre-fade and cue a seven-inch single. Hopefully, Kev, you'll get that chance. And finally, this from Andrea Smith. She says, I've been on both sides of the glass, so to speak, as an audience member for various comedy shows on location, Edinburgh Festival and so on, and at BBC Broadcasting House at the wonderful Radio Theatre. I think the thing that people at home don't know is how often there's visual business going on, actors and comedians messing about. But for many years, she says, I was a BBC producer sitting the other side of things. And two things about that. One, never let the presenter think you're not paying full attention to them at all times, whether you are or not copious nodding exaggerated laughing thumbs up all keep a presenter buoyed up and secondly never underestimate how a producer can stitch up a presenter if they so desire scripts with unexpected difficult to pronounce words in them scripts with lots of alliteration guests who are unbelievably awkward to interview obviously she says I've never done anything like that myself well Andrea Smith will be joining us next season on the podcast to talk about Shakespeare at the BBC that begins in 1923 (laughs) Now, a few episodes ago, we brought you an exclusive chat with the American radio star who came to Britain in the 60s for Radio Caroline and Radio One. Yet here's the long-awaited part two, an airwave memory from Emperor Roscoe.
1: All right, all right. Hey, thank you. Thank you. Very kind of you to uh, have me on the the old pod, as we say. The Emperor Roscoe, in his uh, beginnings, was not Emperor Roscoe, of course. Uh, The Emperor Roscoe was... What was my name? I was Mike... Mike Jones or something ridiculous. Obviously, I wanted to be a DJ. I was enamored with disc jockeys, and I spent a lot of time in the, the stations in San Francisco with the greats, and I would just sit in awe and bring them coffee and biscuits and be the, you know, the general gopher just so I could look at them and study them and see how they worked. Back in those days, it was Tom Donahue and Bob Mitchell who were my idols of the time, if you will. And uh, on radio, I was listening to uh, Bill Mercer and the great Monahue and uh, some of the uh, the rock and roll greats as well. I had watched uh, in San Francisco as they had, the guys at, at the station had their own private independent production company. They made music with Sly Stone and stuff like that. It was all very early times. I mean, Sly and I would hang out. Before, well, he was he was playing bass in a club around the corner, and one would get a lot of input from albums back then. Uh, they used to release a lot of disc jockeys on uh, on thirty three and a third, so I grabbed all that, and of course I just plagiarized everybody and uh, managed to become fairly good at it, so to speak. And uh, so I spent a couple of years doing that, and then. Went to radio school to get my license. It's true. Uh, They called it the Federal Communications Third Ticket. Back in the early 60s, you needed a a license to be a DJ. (laughs) I know you're smiling. Ladies and gentlemen, ciao for now.
0: Thank you, Emperor Roscoe. Now, we welcome your audio reminiscences or your emailed-in first-hand memories of seeing broadcasting in actions. Send a clip or some writing to paul at paulcarenza.com. Next time, day two of the BBC. We won't continue as slowly of one day per episode, but day two brings us Birmingham... And Manchester, and we've unearthed some brilliant details for you, including a never before seen memoir from the second voice of the BBC, Percy Edgar. He was one of the most influential broadcasters and managers of the BBC for the first 30 years or so. And this comes courtesy of his grandson, David Edgar, the renowned playwright. We'll also be hearing from Reverend Cindy Kent, broadcaster from Radio 4, Radio 2, LBC, first presenter on Premier Radio. And Cindy was there when the BBC Light programme became. Radio 1 in 1967. Her airwave memories next time on the British Broadcasting Century. Now, if you've enjoyed our reenactment this time, then I'm sure you will also enjoy, and this is nothing to do with us, but you'll see why we're plugging them, the plays of Tim Wonder, friend of the show, broadcasting history buff and playwright. For the Melbourne concert centenary earlier this year, he staged under very early COVID conditions in an empty theatre, a reconstruction of the first public radio broadcast with Melbourne in Chelmsford. I believe as well because of COVID, that was the only theatrical production on stage at all anywhere in Europe that night, which is kind of crazy. Now, I know they suffered a few technical issues on the first night, but they've re-edited it, and there's a link to that play in the show notes. It's highly recommended. Also, to Tim's other plays, The Man Behind the Microphone and The Power Behind the Microphone, they're biopics of Peter Eckersley, of course, one of the big radio pioneers. You can check out Tim's plays online. The link is in the notes. As for our own reenactment, the first BBC Bulletin featured me as Arthur Burroughs, first voice of the Beeb, our composer Will Farmer as 2 musical director Stanton Jeffries, In other words, Will played the bells and the tuning organ. Andrew Barker featured as Reuters, I suppose, in that he wrote and assembled the script based on much research and analysis of the newspapers of the day, even finding the billiard scores for us. I mean, that deserves a round of applause. And thank you to Tim Wonder for checking over and adding to our script, making sure we got the details bang on. Andrew, Will, Tim, thank you. It's been a real team effort this week. Thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard, please do subscribe, rate, review, share, tell your friends, tell your enemies. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at BB Century. And if you love what you've heard, you can support the show at patreon.com slash Carenza or a one-off donation to coffeecom ko-fi.com slash Carenza But if you don't, don't worry, we won't be using any detective vans. For now, though, happy birthday, BBC, and here's to the next 98 years. The British Broadcasting Century is presented and produced by me, Paul Carenza. The original music is composed by Will Farmer. That includes the bells and the junior organ. Archive clips are public domain, as far as we know. If you think differently, ask us to remove your clip, and we will grovellingly. Stay informed, educated and entertained. And join us next time for day two of the BBC as Birmingham and Manchester joins the fun here on the British Broadcasting Century.